Pastors Larry and Tiz Huck welcome you to another Larry Huck Ministries podcast. We pray this teaching will fill you with God's wisdom, anointing, and revelation knowledge. Thank you for your prayers and faithful support. It is such an honor and a privilege to be here. I've known Pastor Larry for many, many years. I'll tell you what, I'm going to take a second and put it. Oh, there's a timer back there. That's good. That's good. Hallelujah. Thank you, Nancy, for honoring when I said I need an hour. And, uh, I thought it was two. Well, we'll see. We'll see. The Lord has his own clock. But anyway, I've known Pastor Larry for many years. Great man of God. And I'll tell you, Genesis 12, 3, God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. This is a blessed church because this church is a friend of Israel. Many lives are saved in Israel because of the ambulances, the moving ERs that this church has donated to Israel, one after another after another. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you, God says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And he will say that he will bless those who do so. And so this church has been blessed because this church has been loving and supporting the apple of God's eye. But I'll tell you, I want to talk to you today about the blessing that America is. To us and to the world. And it is so sad that as we travel around the country, you see so many people that take America for granted. Even beyond that, you see so many people that are bashing America. I wish I had the money to give every one of those a one-way ticket out of here. To Venezuela, or to Cuba, or to Afghanistan. I'll tell you, we are so blessed. We are blessed beyond any people in earth. And do you realize that America is the only country on the face of the earth that was founded as a Christian country? You know, before those pilgrims got off the boat, they penned a document. It was called the Mayflower Compact. And it started by stating their purpose for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. What a glorious foundation. It continues. In the presence of God, we covenant and combine ourselves together to form a civic body politic. In other words, some form of government. Why? For our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. What are the ends aforesaid? The glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. And, you know, the interesting story about the beginnings of America. When those pilgrims arrived in Plymouth, Massachusetts, get this. They were welcomed by an Indian that spoke perfect English. You talk about the hand of God. His name was 
Squanto. Squanto had been captured by some traders some six years before, taken to England as a slave, was bought by some priest who taught him English, led him to Christ, and then sent him back to America. And he is there in Plymouth, Massachusetts, to welcome the pilgrims. And of course, you know, they, they arrived in November, disastrous winter, half of them died. But when spring came about, Squanto brought another Indian who also spoke English and who also knew Christ by the name of Samoset. And Samoset helped the, this new colonists together with the Indians to plant corn and other vegetables and to have the first harvest, which basically the natives helped them do. And of course, we still today celebrate that Thanksgiving celebration that they did at the end of that harvest. But even these committed Christians, after that year, the next year they decided to try an experiment. A communist experiment. They said, look, we got all this land before us. Why don't we all work the land together? And let us share equally in what the land produces. It sounds very romantic, doesn't it? <laughs> well, that experiment was a total failure. And I'll show you why it was a total failure. Because, you know, this guy over here looks pretty big, pretty strong, pretty committed. He probably would work 12 hours a day. But I wasn't that strong or that committed. I was working two hours a day. How long do you think he was going to work 12 hours a day while I'm working too? And we're going to get the same recompense. Probably no more than a week. And after a week, he'd say, I ain't working any harder than that guy over there. So nobody worked. They almost starved to death. But they were smart enough and flexible enough that at the end of that second year, they came before Governor Bradford. And they said, Governor, this didn't work. And so Governor Bradford said, all right, each of you take your own plot of land. You work the land. You feed your family. And the free enterprise system was born in America that second year of our existence. <laughs> now, the question is this. If we tried it 400 years ago and it didn't work, why would we be dumb enough to try it again? But that's where America is today, and we'll be talking more about that. But let's just get a little history out of the way. You know, we've been told in school that the American Revolution started in the 1770s. But that's not true. The American Revolution really started in the 1730s with preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and many others. And as a matter of fact, another preacher that was the transition between the first great awakening and the second great awakening was a black, fiery preacher by the name of Harry Hoosier. And I'll tell you what, this man in the early 1800s was called the greatest orator in America. He was an evangelist. He evangelized the West. At that time, the West was Indiana. 
And as a matter of fact, he converted so many people in Indiana that all, all of the new Christians began to be called Hoosiers. It is poetic justice. Most people in Indiana don't even have a clue why they're called Hoosiers. But anyway, so it was that first great awakening that was the spark that ignited the American Revolution. The revolution started in the churches. If you look at the Declaration of Independence, I count 26 grievances in the in Declaration. Did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America for 10 years? 10 years, pastors from the pulpit calling out King George for the atrocities that the British were perpetrating against the American people. The question that begs an answer is, where are those pastors today? The majority of them are hiding behind the pulpits, scared to death of not being politically correct. Well, it is about time we become biblically correct instead of politically correct. Praise God that you have a pastor that shouts it from the housetop. That you have a pastor that preaches the whole counsel of God. But unfortunately, he's an exception and not the rule. The majority of pastors in America have been AWOL. America is in the mess it is today because of the failure of the church. I'll tell you, you remember Paul Revere? The British are coming, the British are coming. Did you know that Paul Revere was going to the place in specific? He was going to the home of a pastor, a pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. At his home were two patriots, John Hancock and Samuel Adams. If you didn't know it, Those two men were the leaders of the Boston Tea Party. They were the most wanted men by the British Army. They had orders to hang them for sedition. The very first battle for our independence was the Battle of Lexington. But did you know that the Battle of Lexington was fought right outside the church of Pastor Jonas Clark? As a matter of fact, All the colonists that died in that battle, except one, were members of Pastor Jonas Clark's church. Because the pastor and all the men from their congregation were at the forefront of that battle. Second battle for our independence, the Battle of Concord, fought right outside the Church of Concord. And then the British began retreating northward back to Boston. And history tells us that militias engaged the British along the road and they killed some 600 British soldiers on that retreat. But what history does not tell you, because it has been erased from the history books, is that those militias were composed primarily of pastors and the men from their congregation. 
I want to uh, play you a little video that I sent. It's a four-minute video. Please watch. Let's play the video. Reverend, with your permission, I'd like to make an announcement. Young man, this is a house of God. I understand that, Reverend. I apologize. The South Carolina militia is being called up. I'm here to enlist every man willing. Son, we are here to pray for the souls of those men hanging outside. Yes, pray for them. But honor them by taking up arms with us and bring more suffering to this town? King George can hang those men, our friends. He can hang any one of us. Dan Scott, barely a week ago, I heard you rail for two hours about independence. And? Mr. Hardwick, how many times have I heard you speak of freedom at my father's table? Half the men in this church, including you, Father, and you, Reverend, are as ardent patriots as I. Will you now, when you are needed most, stop at only words? Is that the sort of men you are? I ask only that you act upon the beliefs of which you have so strongly spoken and in which you so strongly believe. Who's with us? permission to write to Anne. Hey? May I have permission to write Anne? Yes. You have permission to write me. Write her? Yes, sir. Very well. Thank you, sir. Reverend? The shepherd must tend his flock. And at times, fight off the wolves. 
You know, I've watched that video several times, and I can't help but get tears in my eyes every time I watch it. That happened in South Carolina. That's a true story. Happening in South Carolina in April of 1975. But let me tell you about my favorite pastor. It was early 1776. His name was John Peter Muhlenberg, a Lutheran pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. He was one of many pastors that the British greatly feared. They called them the Black Robe Regiment because they all wore long black robes. John Peter Muhlenberg is preaching at his church this Sunday, and he's preaching on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He concludes with verse 8. There's a time for war and a time for peace. He pulls a musket from behind the pulpit, and he opens his black robe to uncover his colonel's uniform in the Continental Army. He turns to his congregation and he says, how many of you men will follow me to go fight for our independence? 300 men left that Sunday with Pastor Colonel John Peter Muhlenberg to go fight for our independence. Now, meanwhile, Peter had a brother. His name was Frederick Muhlenberg, also a pastor in New York City. And Frederick is sending letters to Peter. For the sake of the young people here, letters is what we use before the time of text and email. <laughs> so he's sending letters to Peter. Separation of church and state. You shouldn't be involved in politics. You should just be preaching the gospel until the British burn Frederick's church. And then Frederick said, well, 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 maybe, maybe I better get involved. <laughs> How many of you have seen that movie that we showed the video at, The Patriot? Do you remember in that movie that very church being burned by the British? Well, the British burned many churches. Do you know why? Because the revolution was being fostered in the churches. Let me tell you a sovereign reality. Had it not been for pastors, we may still be a colony of Great Britain. It was pastors and the men from their congregation that fought our revolutionary war. Amen. The question again is, where are those pastors today? Amen. Let me tell you, the word of God says that we will have to render an account to God for every idle word that comes out of our mouth. Amen. I believe the opposite is also true. We're going to have to render an account for the words that we have, should have said, but we were too chicken to utter them. The time to hide behind the pulpit is gone. And don't give me excuses like separation of church and state. I mean, I have heard that ad nauseum. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from a letter that the Danbury Baptist wrote then President Thomas Jefferson, our third president. 
And the Danbury Baptists are expressing not only their concerns, but the concerns of all 13 colonies. By the way, let me take a little parenthesis. What do you mean by Danbury Baptists? Well, let me give you a little bit of history that is not in the history books. Did you know that basically each colony only had one denomination? Rhode Island was Baptist, Maryland was Catholic, Pennsylvania was Quaker, Massachusetts was Congregationalist, Virginia was Lutheran with a little bit of Anglican mixed in it. Why? Because it was pastors and the men and women of their congregations that founded the colonies. As a matter of fact, then they said, well, how do we do this government business? I would encourage you to go look at the 13 original constitutions. Did you know that if you read them, it was a requirement for you to be a believer in Jesus Christ to run for public office? Boy, have we come a long ways from there, have we? So anyway, the Danbury Baptists were not only concerned about whether they're going to impose a state denomination other than Baptist, but every colony was concerned. So the Danbury Baptists were expressing the concern of all 13 colonies. You know, 200 years before, the pilgrims came to America because the King of England in the early 1600s, the King of England was a Catholic, and he decided to rebel against the Pope in Rome. And he decided to become his own Pope. And he created what was called the Church of England, the Anglican Church. And if you were not a member of the Anglican Church, you were considered a heretic and you were persecuted. That's what drove the pilgrims to America to have the freedom to worship Almighty God. Now move forward 200 years. All 13 colonies are concerned, is this new government going to impose a state denomination upon we the people? And it's not gonna be my denomination. All 13 colonies were concerned. So in order to appease their fears, Jefferson writes a letter back. But remember, he's addressing all 13 colonies, even though it's addressed to the Danbury Baptist. And he begins by saying, believing with you that religion is a matter that lays solely between man and his God, that he owes account to no one for his faith and worship. He continues that their legislature should make no law respecting and establishing a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, he quotes verbatim from the First Amendment of the Constitution. And then he says, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. If you look at those three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson is talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to prevent government 
from imposing a state denomination upon we the people. A one-way wall to prevent government from interfering with our free exercise of religion. In no way, shape, or form could you infer that Jefferson was saying that the church should not be involved in the civic society. As a matter of fact, Jesus said exactly the opposite. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But then he turned around, he said, you are the light of the world. You know something? Light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. You know, we're going to have to stop just playing church inside the four walls. While the country is going to hell in a handbasket. The question is this. What are you doing with your light? Are you hiding it under your pew? Or pastors, are you hiding it behind the pulpit? It is time that we become salt and light to an insipid and darkened world. To whom much is given, much is required. Let me tell you, people have used so many excuses, especially pastors, to not get involved. Like, for example, do you remember the passage in the book of Matthew where these Pharisees come to Jesus and uh, say, is it... Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar? And Jesus said, bring me a denarius. And he looks at the coin and said, whose image is this? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And let me tell you how the great majority of pastors in America have interpreted that statement. Divorce yourself from Caesar. But that's not what Jesus said. What Jesus was saying was the following. In the kingdom of God, you have certain responsibilities. And you must be faithful to those responsibilities. But in the same manner. In the civic society, you also have some responsibilities, and you must also be faithful to those responsibilities. America is in a crisis today. I don't think there is any verse of scripture that describes what's happening in America today better than Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. And Deuteronomy 30, 19, God says... I set before you today life and death, the blessing and the curse. And then he says, so choose life. I mean, it ought to be an easy decision. So choose life that you and your descendants may live. 
That is what, where we are today in America. We are at a decision point. And we are in a battle. In a battle for our future and the future of our children and our children's children. And listen to me very carefully. If we lose this battle, our children and our grandchildren will not have a future. Amen. If that doesn't set you on fire, your wood is all wet. <laughs> we are fighting for the future of our children and our children's children. The craziness is gone beyond anything we could have even imagined just 10 years ago. When now they say there are 76 genders. And uh, a senator is interviewed the other day. And this interviewer talks about a person who has the ability to get pregnant. And this senator says, you mean a woman? And this interviewer says, you are transphobic. What you're saying is transphobic. I didn't even know that word existed. <laughs> when children in our schools are being told, you decide whether you're a boy or a girl. It used to be all you had to do was look. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it's worse than that. I read not too long ago about that schools are making it available and you know just that if a little boy or a little girl thinks they're a dog or a cat they need to provide them the ability to have a bowl on the floor from which they can eat without using their hands or their feet because they gotta go on all four and lap that this is happening in our schools today this is crazy this is not fiction. This is reality. School boards are, being, are telling parents that they need to, not parents, are telling teachers that they need to assist these children in gender transition. And the push that there is now is you need to do that without the consent of the parents. Do you remember years ago, a past candidate for president saying, it takes a village to raise a child. Remember that statement? Well, no, it does not take a village to, take a, to raise a child. It takes a committed father and mother. But do you know what that statement, it takes a village to raise a child, means? Let's translate it to English. The children don't belong to you, they belong to the government. Let me tell you, I had first-hand experience on communism. Some of you know my background. I was in prison and tortured during the revolution. And I'll tell you. When Castro took over, my mother was an elementary school teacher. She taught sixth grade. 
she was told she must teach Marxism. Now, public school teachers were civil servants. In a communist country, if you're a civil servant, you cannot quit. That's against the law. So what my mother had to do, or what she decided to do, is she faked an attack of insanity in the middle of her sixth grade class. She just was running up and down, pulling her hair, making a total idiot out of herself. And she was dismissed for reason of insanity. She later told me, I would rather suffer public humiliation than poison the minds of children with communist indoctrination. I am so proud of that stand that she took. But she also told me that when Castro took over, soldiers would come into a kindergarten class and tell the little kids, all right, close your eyes and ask God for candy. Come on, come on, come on. Close your eyes and ask God for candy. Okay, open your eyes. Where's the candy? No candy. All right, close your eyes again and ask Fidel for candy. And while the children had the eyes closed very quietly, the soldiers would place candy in every desk. Those children were told that if they heard their parents speaking against the government, they had the responsibility, the civic duty to turn in their parents to the police. You see, you must understand, communism needs to destroy the concept of God because government must become your God. Communism also needs to destroy the family because loyalty must not be to the family, it must be to almighty government. There is a method in the madness that we are seeing around America today. The question is, what are we going to do about it? It is our fault. I have heard so many Christians say, politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Have you heard it? Talk to me. Have you heard it? I'm not going to ask you if you said it. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. You know why politics is a dirty business? Because the people of principle, the people of God, are not running for office and they're not voting. George Barna, who does surveys among evangelical Christians, came to a conclusion in a survey that 50% of the people in the average church in America are not even registered to vote. And of the ones that are registered to vote, only half of them are voting. It is our fault. It is our fault. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked beareth rule, people mourn. Yeah. But 
eat the righteous, and I'm not talking about the self-righteous, and I'm talking about those that have received the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If the righteous are not running for office, if the righteous are not even voting, then what's left? The wicked electing the wicked. And it becomes our fault. Let me tell you, it is our responsibility. It is our responsibility. America is a gift to the world. Do you realize we are about 4% of the population of the world? And yet, America has evangelized 70 to 80% of the whole world has come out of America. God has used America to evangelize the world. And that's why God has blessed America so greatly. But I'll tell you, there are many in America now that are shaking their fists at God. What are we going to do about it? Let me tell you a story. On my last trip to Israel, I was in Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was the most idolatrous city in the time of Jesus. It was a Hellenistic city built by Alexander the Great. In this city, they sacrificed babies to the devil. They had a deep pit where they threw babies alive in this pit. They called it the gates of hell. It was in this city where Jesus asked the disciple, whom do you say that I am? And Peter makes that great declaration, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and says, Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. But my father who is in heaven, and upon this rock, not Peter, but the declaration of Peter, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Upon that rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. If you ask a hundred Christians, even a hundred pastors, what does that word church that word ecclesia mean? Probably all of them will tell you, well, it means the called out ones. And that's not incorrect. But that was not the principal meaning of that word ecclesia 2,000 years ago when Jesus uttered it. In that Hellenistic society, that word ecclesia meant the ruling class. The movers and the shakers, the governing body, the ones who sat at the gate, the ones who led everybody else. That's what God is calling the church to be. Have you ever seen a tail wag a dog? Pretty hard, isn't it? But that's what we've been, the tail and not the head. It is about time we take our responsibility. If we go to Matthew 28, 18, and I have to tell you a little story. I was talking to a young man not too long ago, coming out of a cemetery, you know, seminary. 
and uh, and he says, well, uh, according to the Great Commission, and he begins quoting on Matthew 28, 19. I say, whoa, 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 wait just a minute. Great Commission starts one verse before that. Let's start reading in Matthew 28, 18. And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus said, all power or all authority in heaven and in earth has been given unto me. What are the next three words beginning of verse 19? Go ye therefore. So in other words, Jesus is saying this. Because all power and authority has been given unto me, that is unto Jesus, therefore you go. Do you know what that is? That is a delegation of authority. Jesus is delegating his authority to you and I to go in the name of Jesus and conquer territory. And when you understand that, you understand that when Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, that is not a defensive statement. That is an offensive statement. We storm the gates of hell. We kick down the gates of hell. And let me tell you something. You cannot do that sitting in your pews or sitting at home watching the idiot box. We got to get out in the trenches. You know, right after the American Revolution... There was a man that came to America from France. His name was Alexis de Tocqueville. And Alexis de Tocqueville said, not until I went into the churches of America and saw its pulpits flame with righteousness. Let me stop for a minute. Are America's pulpits today flame with righteousness? Some are. This one is. But very few. Very few. Because too many pastors are more concerned with not offending anyone. Tickling men's and women's ears. You look at America today. You know what the fastest growing churches in America are today? They're called seeker-friendly churches. Which is a synonym with tickle men's and women's ear, just dilute the gospel so you don't offend anyone. Let us be all inclusive. Well, I don't see Jesus. The invitation is all inclusive. But you got to receive it. You can continue to shake your fist at God and demand no, we need to surrender to him. Amen. But we surrender to him so we can move out in the power and authority of the name of Jesus. Amen. So let me get back to Alexis the Tocqueville. Not until I went into the churches of America and saw its pulpits flame with righteousness did I understand the secret of its genius and power. See, he understood that the power of America came from the churches. Yeah. 
That's what we have to get back to. And then Tocqueville said the same, the following. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. I'm going to repeat this statement because it's so very important and we need to get it. America is great because America is good. And if America ever ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. The goodness of America is under attack today. And, uh, you know, I remember reading about the leader of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney. And he said, he's speaking to pastors. And he said, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, is that happening today? He says, the pulpit is responsible for it. Then he said, if Satan rules the halls of legislation, is that happening today? He says, the pulpit is responsible for it. He continues, if our politics has become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government is ready to fall away. Wow, it seems like we're reading this week's newspaper. But people don't read newspapers anymore, but maybe the internet or watch it on television. He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, lest you say, well, he's talking to pastor. He's not talking to me. Let me tell you something. We all have a pulpit. All of us have a pulpit. It may be the place where you work. It may be the place where you go to school. It may be your extended family. Your pulpit is your circle of influence. Now, obviously, the pastors have greater responsibility to whom much is given, much is required. But he's talking to all of us. And then he concludes by saying, let us be thoroughly aware of this fact of our responsibility with respect to the morals of this nation. And you know, again, I've heard many Christians say, well, politics cannot legislate morality. Have you heard it? Yes. That is a lie. Yes. Politics legislates morality all the time. Yes. All the time. Let me give you five examples real quickly. I got 10 minutes. And, uh, and I'm getting ready to rebuke the clock anyway. But <laughs> 1962, prayer was removed from all public schools. There may be people old enough here to remember when we prayed in school. That became illegal in 1962. A year later, the Bible was banned from all public schools. Do you know who printed the first Bible in America? Congress printed the first Bible in America. And you know what they did with it? First thing, it was a little bitty Bible, about this big. They gave a copy free to every member of the armed forces to carry with them. 
And then it became the principal textbook in every school in America from kindergarten all the way through graduate school. And it was so for over 150 years. And in 1963, the Bible was banned. But in spite of these two abominable decisions, removal of prayer and removal of the Bible, the church remained silent. Their excuse is a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call Bible study a political issue? But that's exactly what the church did. Do you know the consequence of that silence? Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963 and so did violent crime. Ten years later, nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life from our Creator. And they legalized abortion. Over 62 million babies have been murdered in America by abortion. God help us. Praise God that Roe v. Wade was finally thrown in the ash heap of history. But let's not forget, 62 million babies were murdered in America because of abortion. And no one is more at fault than the church. Because when that ruling came out from the Supreme Court, the church remained silent. Same excuse. It's a political issue. And then on June of 2015, that same Supreme Court decided that God got it wrong. Genesis 1:27, God says, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. And then it says, for this reason shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his own wife. It was Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Amen. June 2015, that went down the drain. And then now, we are in the age of wokeism. We are in the age where... As I said, there, depending upon who you, talk, who you talk, there are 67 or 75 genders where I, my sister, was talking to a friend of hers who said, well, my daughter who lives in California just had a baby. And my sister asked her friend, well, is it a boy or girl? And she said, I don't know. I asked my daughter, and this is what her daughter said. Well, we're going to let the baby decide. How crazy is this? I mean, are you blind when you put a diaper on? We're going to let the baby decide. So I guess meanwhile, they called the baby an it. I mean, it, this is craziness. It's the age of lawlessness. You know... Uh, we were talking in, in the uh, break room before we came in here for a minute. And, and I was saying, you know, Jesus said that he will be when he comes back like in the days of Lot. Yeah. Or like in the days of Noah. 
I can't imagine that it was any worse in those days. I mean, we live in an age of lawlessness, and there is a systematic effort to destroy any concept of God. We are in a spiritual war. But you know, remember, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations. See, this is where the enemy attacks you. That the enemy is going to tell you the same thing he told Eve. Did God really say? To where you start questioning the word of God. Well, let me tell you something. This is God's word from beginning to end. Every word. Every dot, every tittle. John chapter 1. Verses 1, 2, and 14. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And verse 14, and the verse, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glorious of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. This book and Jesus are one and the same. Amen. And that means we need to follow every word of this book. Amen. But I'll tell you, I am encouraged. I am encouraged because I think the blinders are falling. The scales are falling from people's eyes. Samuel Adams, one of my favorite framers, said, It does not take a majority to prevail, but only an irate, tireless minority keen on setting brush fires of liberty in the hearts and the minds of men. It is about time that we get on fire and we decide that America is worth saving. It is up to you and I. It is up to you and I. We need to raise the banner on high. Because it's his name. It's lifted up. He will draw all men unto himself. It is up to you and I. We cannot continue to just go along to get along. God is calling his people to stand for righteousness sake. You know, I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the Constitution of the United States of America is a divinely inspired document. You know why? Because the framers were on their knees seeking revelation from God. And revelation is what they got. You know, the average lifespan of a constitution is only 17 years. 17 years. I remember being in Peru a few years ago, and they're telling me proudly that they had had 16 constitutions, and the new president was going to write a new one. And I said, well, we have had one. One. And uh, let me tell you, this year... It's going to be 235 years of that constitution. Amen. September, 
1787 was when the Constitution was written. September of 1722 will be 235 years. Why has this lasted over 20 times? Because it was inspired by God. And what are the first words on that Constitution? We, the people. You see, we've been fooled into thinking that we work for them. But the reality is they work for us. And listen to me carefully. We have the power to hire them and to fire them. How do we do that? Through our vote. It is imperative that every Christian is registered to vote and you vote for righteousness sake. It is imperative that you go to the polls and you vote for men and women that uphold the Judeo-Christian principles upon which this nation was built. It is up to us. If we fail in that endeavor, our children and our grandchildren may not have a future. I want to finish with Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free. And do not entangle yourselves again with the yoke of bondage. Let me tell you, too many of us have self-imposed a yoke of bondage by being a wall from the political process. It is our vote that elects who is going to rule us. Look what happened in South Lake when the church decided enough is enough. I'm not going to have ungodly people in the school board control what our children are being taught. And when the church got together and went both, they threw the bombs out and now Christians are running the school board. That started a spark to where now that has happened in over 200 school boards across America. That needs to happen in every local election, every county election, every state election, every national election. It is up to you and us. But I'll tell you, Galatians 5.1 applies much more than just the political process. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're in bondage to sin. And Jesus came to set you free. And so I want to just invite you today, if you do not know that Jesus Christ loved you so much that he went to a cross to die for you, to take upon himself all of your sins, to become your substitute, that the judgment of God that you and I deserve fell upon him. And the proof that that payment was sufficient was that God raised him from the dead. If you believe that, just confess Jesus Christ is my Lord and receive him right now. But you know, it's much more than that. At the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Salvation, healing, and deliverance was all provided at the cross for us. Some of you may be in bondage to depression. Or may be in bondage to anxiety. Or you may be in bondage to some kind of addiction. 
whether it is drugs or alcohol or, or uh, watching soap operas <laughs> or playing video games or just gossiping, whatever you are in bondage to, Jesus is here to set you free. If you are in bondage to anything, just stand up and receive his deliverance right now. He's here to deliver you. And he's here also to deliver you from all sickness and all disease. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 16 and 17, it says, When it was dark, they brought to Jesus many that were demon-possessed. And with his word, he cast out the demons and he healed all. How many? All that were sick. That it may be fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Saying himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. If you are suffering from sickness and disease. From any kind of impairment. Right now get up and receive your healing. In the name of Jesus. Jesus is here to heal you. Receive it in the name of Jesus. Lift up your hands and say I receive it. I receive it. Just receive it in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. Receive it. God is moving through this place now. And people are being healed right now. Receive it. Receive it. Thank you, Lord God. It is done. It is finished in the name of Jesus. Receive it in Jesus' name. You want to call people to come for individual prayer? If anyone wants to come and have individual prayer, you're welcome to do so. There will be elders here to pray for you. Let us dismiss. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord God, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. We receive the completed work of the cross. Salvation, healing, and deliverance.